Hey there, it's Mitch here. And before we get into today's episode, our spring membership drive has officially sprung and we've got one heck of a giveaway. When you make a donation in any amount to Vermont Public by March 16th, you'll be entered to win a new roof valued up to $15,000 thanks to Vermont Construction Company. Your support makes everything we do possible. Make a gift today so we can keep bringing you the trustworthy, reliable news you count on day in and day out. To make your gift, head to vermontpublic.org donate. And thanks. From Vermont Public, this is The Frequency. I'm Mary Engish filling in for Mitch Wardley. It's Friday, March 1st. Here are today's headlines. Lawmakers in the House Committee that deals with agriculture are weighing special relief for Vermont orchards. The bill aims to help fruit tree growers who suffered catastrophic losses from a historic late frost last May. Several orchards told lawmakers this week they suffered 90 to 95 percent crop losses. Casey Darrow is with Green Mountain Orchards in Putney. They grow 90 acres of apples. We don't know what we would do. We don't think we could survive another similar event this spring, so we're feeling very vulnerable. Orchard owners say federal crop insurance payments reimburse Vermont farmers for just a fraction of the value of their lost crops, and that's if they have it. And federal relief is only available in loans. So many orchards are facing hundreds of thousands of dollars in losses, right as they need to prune. House lawmakers propose setting aside $10 million in state funds to help. Climate change is expected to bring more unseasonably cool weather to Vermont in early summer and late spring. Governor Phil Scott will attend a rally for Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley in South Burlington this Sunday. Scott says he's encouraging Republicans and Democrats alike to cast a ballot for Haley in Vermont's open primary election on Tuesday. I've said early on uh, that I'll do anything I can uh, to prevent what I see happening, uh, which is uh, for President, former President Trump to receive the nomination. Uh, and then we have a repeat of uh, four years ago, which I don't think is healthy for the country. Scott says a second Trump presidency would exacerbate the polarization and division that have made Americans fearful of the direction the country's heading in. Trump won the New Hampshire primary in late January with an 11-point advantage over Haley. The southbound portion of Interstate 91 between Bradford and Fairley will be closed for at least a week to undergo repairs caused by a Tuesday night rock slide. Work is expected to begin Saturday. An official from the Vermont Agency of Transportation told the Valley News the interstate is closed because there's large rocks on top of a nearby slope that aren't stable enough to withstand upcoming freezing and thawing weather. Drivers can instead use a detour on routes 5 and 25. Fairley's police chief advised drivers to budget extra travel time because Route 5 already has high traffic due to the closure of the East Thetford-Lyme Bridge. Organizers of the Montpelier Farmers Market are asking lawmakers to intervene after state officials announced they could no longer use the downtown location they've relied on for the past four years. State officials say they've offered organizers numerous other locations this summer. Market manager Carrie Ryan says none offer the benefits of the 133 State Street parking lot, which is adjacent to the Vermont State House. If anything can kill a market, it's moving it to a new location. 
people get to know where to find the farmer's market. You start moving it around town, people don't find it, and then they give up. The Department of Buildings and General Services says a flood recovery project will take the 133 State Street lot out of commission for the summer. Ryan and other market organizers are asking lawmakers to convince the department to reconsider its construction timeline. And nearly 14,000 Vermonters were without power early yesterday morning after strong winds downed trees and power lines. The state's southernmost communities were hardest hit, with Wyndham, Windsor, and Bennington counties reporting the most outages. Wind gusts of up to 60 miles per hour were reported, with sustained winds hovering around 30 miles per hour for several hours. Coming up, a handful of Vermont towns may adopt a declaration of inclusion on town meeting day. Hear why after this. The Frequency is supported by MVP Healthcare, offering Medicare Advantage plans made for Vermont and guided by doctors, in partnership with the UVM Health Network. Info at uvmhealthadvantage.com. On town meeting day this year, at least six Vermont municipalities will have voters decide whether to adopt a declaration of inclusion. A sample version of the statement says that the town condemns racism and commits to fair treatment of everyone, regardless of race, religion, gender, and several other traits. Since 2021, a nonprofit has led the effort to have each of Vermont's 247 towns and cities adopt the declaration. Menden resident and retired executive consultant Al Wakefield is one of the founding members of the Declaration Initiative, and he joined producer Nathaniel Wilson to shed some light on what it means. To start, what purpose does the Declaration of Inclusion serve, and why do Vermont cities and towns need to declare themselves as inclusive communities? Thanks so much for that question, Nathaniel. If Vermont is going to continue to grow and prosper, it needs to be able to attract people from all walks of life. We felt that the Declaration of Inclusion was one way of doing it. We are an aging population. We're rather losing our youth. Young folks are not returning to Vermont. And the Declaration of Inclusion says that we welcome All people, especially those who've been historically marginalized, we welcome them to come bring their families, build their businesses here, and over the long term, that should have a positive impact on Vermont's vitality and prosperity. Heading into this year's town meeting day, 135 of Vermont's 247 towns and cities have already adopted a declaration of inclusion. What kind of work went into making that happen? Certainly. There are five of us, Nathaniel, working on this. We started off with Bob Harnish and me and subsequently joined by Norm Cohen, Patty Lancaster, and Barbara Noyes Pulling. And each of us, we almost we work at this almost like account managers in that each one of us has X number of towns uh, assigned to us. And we so we started with the largest towns uh, and cities and municipalities in Vermont working towards the smallest. And so the five of us each have responsibility for making initial contact with the town manager or the town administrator or town clerk or the head of the select board if there's no town management, working with them to get on uh, to the town's uh, select board agenda. We make a five to seven minute presentation, answer any questions, and then the hope is that uh, they will vote affirmatively. Or as we are discussing right now, uh, some select boards opt to defer to the town for a town vote. 
We've seen some pushback on the declaration as well. Highgate and Hubberton approved statements before rescinding them last year. Select board members have said existing laws serve the same purpose or that their communities are already inclusive. How do you respond to people who say that the declaration is not needed in 2024? Well, it's, it's very interesting, Nathaniel. Uh, none of the towns, and there are two that you named, uh, have told us uh, explicitly why they decided to reject, to not adopt the declaration. Several others have, have tabled it for further visitation. We respond in that Vermont may well be known for being a place for all people to come prosper and, and, and thrive. But there are many of us, and especially those who are marginalized, know that while it's a good place to be, it's nowhere near as good as it can be, and certainly not where it says it, it actually is. Uh, their implicit bias uh, happens almost daily to many of us who are in those marginalized groups. And what we're saying with the decoration is that it's an opportunity to make Vermont unique uh, as it thinks it is. Uh, to say to the rest of the world that we are welcoming, welcoming rather, especially those who have been historically uh, marginalized. What kind of work goes into ensuring that cities and towns are holding up their end of the bargain after adopting a declaration? Just yesterday, in fact, some 20 to 30 surveys went out to the original 30 towns that signed the Declaration of Inclusion. We're going systematically through uh, from town number one to town number 135 or so over the next year to year and a half to see where where they are. And so we'll hopefully begin to get some feedback uh, on that survey in the next two, three weeks or so from from towns. And we'll know whether they've not only uh, uh, agreed to adopt, but they've done something uh, relevant to the adoption. And so we're now more than three years removed from the beginning of the declaration initiative. What are some of the lasting impacts of previously signed declarations across the state? Several towns, uh, notably, I think, Middlebury, which was an early adopter, have established an equity uh, committee. The town of Bethel, uh, a contrasting town to Middlebury in many ways, was very, very aggressive about establishing uh, a declaration, uh, inclusion and equity uh, committee. Uh, Winooski had had moved along in doing the same thing, begun to implement many of the things that are outlined uh, on our uh, website. Some towns are working with both the state's uh, Office of Racial Equity as well as the Vermont League of Cities and Towns. They have a program in conjunction with Abundant Sun to train managers and town people on how to uh, implement the principles of the Declaration of Inclusion. And what kind of work is your team doing now to grow the list of towns with declarations moving forward? We've got 115, 116 towns to go. Uh, And so we're working day by day to get to the remaining 116. While, as I said earlier, following up on the original 135, this piece of it, quite honestly, is going to be more difficult. Uh, We're talking about smaller towns that are more remote, uh, that don't have uh, Zoom or other virtual uh, platforms. And so the labor is more more intense. And and quite honestly, smaller towns uh, don't see themselves 
as uh, having an opportunity uh, as expressed through the Declaration of Inclusion. And so there, there probably is more in the way of, of dialogue that has to occur uh, with them than perhaps has to occur with uh, communities that are more diverse now, such as the ones that I just named. That was Menden resident Al Wakefield, one of the founding members of the Declaration of Inclusion Initiative, speaking to producer Nathaniel Wilson. Thanks for listening to The Frequency today. We had additional reporting from Abigail Giles, Peter Hirschfeld, and Adia Goldston. Our executive producer is Kevin Trevelin, and our music is by Blue Dot Sessions. I'm Mary Angish. I'll talk to you tomorrow for another weekend episode of the podcast featuring the Capital Recap. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.